Well, good morning and turning your copy of your scriptures or scroll in your Bible app to the book of Jonah, uh, the book of Jonah chapter 1. And as you do that, I'll just uh, briefly share, just so everybody knows, kind of a public service announcement. I am aware of the man who was swimming off of Cape Cod or New England and who was briefly swallowed by the whale. I'm, I was aware uh, for all like 20 of you who texted me over the past. It's great. It's just so funny. Like, I just keep getting it. On my way to church this morning, someone was like, LOL, and he texted to me. So it's great. If you haven't heard about that, look it up. It's kind of funny. Uh, not funny. The man almost died. But now that he's alive, we can kind of laugh about it. So look that up. Uh, enjoy that. Just don't text me because I know. So I'm well aware of the modern-day quasi-Jonah situation we had off of New England. Jonah chapter 1, hey, since this is the word of God, uh, it comes to us with the exact same authority as if Jesus were standing here verbally speaking to us. And so if you're physically able, would you please stand in honor of the voice of our King? Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is what the word of God says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep." So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupations and, and, and where do you come from and what is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, 
And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we come before you grateful to hear from you. We pray that you would move within our minds, within our hearts, to show us what we need to see about you, about ourselves, that we might be more pleasing to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Again, last week we kicked off our sermon series for the summer, which will, Lord willing, take us through the book of Jonah. I want to once again recommend that you find a way to add Jonah to your Bible reading diet, whatever you're doing. It's a four-chapter book. You could theoretically read it on the way to church, preferably if you're not driving. But you, you could read the book of Jonah before you come to church throughout this series and just add maybe 10 minutes to your Bible reading. It's a great opportunity for you to familiarize yourself with one of the smaller books that we have, certainly of the Old Testament. Um, and so we're going to look forward to going through it together. But I want to encourage you, if you haven't done so already, familiarize yourself with the book of Jonah on your own time. You will not regret it. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1 says this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Let's stop there. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, we're introduced to Jonah as Jonah, the son of Amittai. It's not uncommon for people to be introduced uh, to one another based on who their father is. In a sense, we do that today, right? I'm Peter LaRufa, which tells you I'm a LaRufa, and that connects me to the LaRufa family. But in Old Testament times, instead of using a surname, uh, I would have been Peter. I would have been really confusing because I'm a junior. So I would have been Peter, the son of Peter, which is my father's name. Uh, even though Jonah is considered to be a minor prophet, you need to know that the original readers of the account would have immediately known who Jonah the son of Amittai was, because that would have hearkened them back to 2 Kings chapter 14. So if you would keep your finger, keep your place in Jonah chapter 1, I do want you to flip back to uh, the book of 2 Kings chapter 14. So I want you to see, I want you to see where we would have first heard of Jonah the son of Amittai. 2 Kings chapter 14, and take a look at uh, we'll pick it up beginning in verse 23. I was in 1 Kings. I said 2 Kings. 2 Kings 14 beginning in verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. So Jeroboam II, you need to know, is one of Israel's most important kings. And yet only seven verses are devoted to his reign in 2 Kings 14, verses 23 through 29. It was in the reign of Jeroboam II that a recovery effort that had begun previously reached its peak. His Conquest restored all of Israel's lost territories, particularly across the northern border. In fact, he actually restored Israel's influence in the north so that it was similar to the days of Solomon. Let me try to put it into contemporary terms that we can probably understand quite well. The nation of Israel was struggling and had gone down the tubes for a variety of reasons over the years prior to Jeroboam II's reign. But Jeroboam II was committed to make Israel great again. And he had a prophet, and that prophet was Jonah, the son of Amittai. Look at verse 25, 2 Kings 14, verse 25. 
He restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, who? Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. And we won't look at it today, but you could also see Amos and Hosea actually criticize uh, Jeroboam II for its injustice and unfaithfulness. But Jonah took a different view. He supported Jeroboam II's aggressive policy, aggressive military policy to restore Israel's power and influence, to restore it to the nation it once was, to make Israel great again. Now, let's go back to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah 1 and verse 1, and we read that verse once again. Now, the word of the Lord came to who? Jonah, the son of Amittai. There's no background information given because Jonah, the son of Amittai, needed no introduction. Anyone who read this would have known Jonah, the son of Amittai. He would have gained popularity as a prophet for at least two reasons. Number one, he prophesied that Israel's northern borders would be restored. And number two, it came to pass. And so not only was his prophecy fulfilled, which would legitimize him as a prophet present day, right, to the people he was prophesying to. So the people actually heard him prophesy and then saw it fulfilled. That's one thing. But he had something else going for him, and that was the fact that Jonah was prophesying a message that people wanted to hear, right? So not only did it happen, people were kind of excited when he prophesied it to begin with. Like, ooh, we hope it's happening. Because not all the prophets are prophesying things that people want to hear. Sometimes it's prophesying death, doom, gloom, and judgment, and then it happens, and it's kind of like, boo, I know it's fulfilled, but we didn't like it to begin with, and we don't like it now. Jonah was the opposite. He's prophesying that things are going to get better, and then they do get better, And so he was not only a prophet, but he was a prophet that people liked. He would have been viewed as for God and country. He was intensely patriotic. He was highly partisan. He was an Israeli nationalist. When you thought of Israel as a nation, and you thought of the nation advancing and things getting better, you would have thought of Jonah delivering very good news. This guy tells it like it is, and it gets done. So look at verse 1 once again. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh. And that's altogether different from anything Jonah's been called to do ever before in his entire life. Let's talk about why this was atypical. First, up until this point, prophets had only been sent to God's people. They'd only been sent to God's people. Sure, Jeremiah, Amos, Isaiah, they all pronounced a a few prophetic words to Gentiles, but they were brief, and they didn't go. They just pronounced the words. None of them were sent out to those nations to preach. What Jonah was commissioned to do was unprecedented. Let's talk a little bit about Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which was, in every way, shape, and form, a terrorist state. It was a terrorist state. It was one of the cruelest and most violent empires in ancient times. Let me see if I can explain that to you. Assyrian kings would record the results of their military victories and gloat about entire plains just littered with corpses, bragging about having burned entire cities to the ground. They would depict torture, dismemberment, and decapitations of enemies in great detail on large stone panels for everyone to see. 
And so what we're talking about, these large stone panels for everyone to see, this is what I call Old Testament YouTube. Right? Old Testament YouTube. Just like nowadays we've seen, maybe you've seen, maybe you haven't seen, some horrifying footage in recent times of what uh, ISIS would do to Christians, decapitating, beheading people on a beach or things like that. And it's not that they're ashamed of it. It's not, oh, you caught us. They're like, hey, hey, look here. Slam that subscribe button. Hit that bell. Do, do a thumbs up. This is, this is something. I want you to know we did this. So we did this. Let everybody know we did this. We killed that guy. This is what we think of you. See that horrible thing that's taken place, this horrible act of terrorism? We're taking credit for it. Why? Because we did it. We like it, and we want you to know. So this is, this is unbelievable, high-handed, arrogant sin in the face of God. People sinning and loving that they're sinning. After Assyrians would capture enemies, the Assyrians would cut off their legs and one arm. They would leave the other arm in hand so they could shake the victim's hand in public as they died. Friends and family members were forced to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones on poles. They would pull out the tongues of prisoners and stretch their bodies with ropes so they could be flayed. They would display their skins on city walls. We could go on and on. If you survived the destruction of a city they had taken over, you would be forced to endure Cruel, violent forms of slavery. If you were an adolescent, you'd be burned alive. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. They were a terror state throughout Jonah's entire lifetime. This nation was where Jonah was commissioned by God to go. And so before we're just like, Jonah, that guy, am I right? God tells him to go east and he goes west. (laughs) I would never do that. Let's just understand, just a minute, what Jonah was saying no to. It's not going to justify his disobedience, but please understand what he was saying no to. See, for Jonah being a prophet before, this was a pretty sweet gig. Before, it was good news for people wanting good news. Hey, guess what? We're going to make Israel great again. God's going to work through this guy. This guy's going to restore the northern borders of our land. That's awesome. That'll get a cheer. High fives all around. It's a fun message to preach. Jonah 1 and verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Look at this. For their evil has come up before me. Again, Nineveh was a wicked city. Their their wickedness was presumptuous. They sinned with a a high hand. They were arrogant about it, proud of it, flaunting it, not, not trying to hide it. They're like, yeah, this would be us. This is how we roll. Come at me, bro. This is how we roll in Nineveh. This is how we roll as Assyrians. They would celebrate it. In your Bibles, that term has come up in the Hebrew. It means to a high degree. If you measured wickedness in a cup, all right, picture filling a cup right to the brim. I mean, such that you're like, whoa, okay, I'm going to walk this over very carefully because it's just filled right to the brim. One ounce more, it would, fill, it would just spill over. Has come up before me. The Hebrew, for, the Hebrew term is to my face. To my face. God is spirit. John 4, 24. He doesn't have a face. But he wants to make sure that we understand. Like in our. It's called an anthropomorphic. Uh, an anthropomorphism. Where he's letting us know. Like picture like right to your. Right here. He's sitting right in my face. Their sin has come up before me. And it's just like as if it's right 
here. And instead of destroying them as their sins deserve, which God would have every right to do, just like for all of us, God wants to give them a chance to repent, to turn from their sin, to acknowledge him as God, and to avoid the wrath to come. So he sends Jonah as a witness against their high-handed sin to warn them of the destruction that was coming upon them for it. This is an alarm. Look at again at verse 2. It says, call out. So it's like, don't whisper it, Jonah. Don't stand there with a sign and hope people see it. Be, be, pro, be active. Don't stand in a corner and hope people hear you. But publish it in the streets. Call out. Shout it from the rooftops. Get the message out. Let everyone who has functioning ears hear what God has to say to them so they might be spared judgment. And call out against it is likely not the best translation from the Hebrew. A better translation would be preach to it. An even better translation would probably be preach in it. Arise, go to Nineveh, preach in it. And the message he was to preach was not like other prophetic messages he had been given before because it was a message of compassion and an opportunity for rescue from judgment versus just saying judgment was coming and you're all going to die. You say, I don't know, Pete. Like, I get the whole compassion thing, but the text says, call out what? Against it, for their evil has come up before me. How could that be a message of hope? It's a valid question. I would just kind of respond to that question with another question. Why would God send a warning for judgment unless there was a chance of escaping judgment? Right? Why would God send a warning? So I don't... I. I'm a baseball fan. I like A League of Their Own, that movie. Remember Tom Hanks, maybe? You remember Stillwell Angel? That's the, 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 daughter, the son of one of the players. You're gonna lose. You're gonna... That's not this. That's not this. This is not pronouncing judgment. Like, this is gonna happen. You're all gonna die. God's gonna show himself to be great. You're all gonna die. This is different. This is a warning message. It's not you're gonna lose. It's you can be spared. Judgment is coming, but you can be spared. And why would God send a warning for judgment unless there was a chance of judgment being averted? This wasn't a message about judgment. It was a message of mercy to a people who would never, ever, ever have mercy on Jonah. But would likely kill him or torture him for their own pleasure. So please get the picture that prior to this commissioning of sorts from God saying, go to Nineveh and preach this, Jonah had spent his prophetic career, if you will, uh, talking about how God was going to work through the nation of Israel to undo the damage that these people had done. Okay? So now he's being told, okay, good job. Next assignment. Go to Nineveh and preach to them. If you were called to preach, I think God's called me to preach. I God's given, uh, God gives enablement with his gifting and he calls you to do something and you do it. You would say, I would, I think I would do that, that thing. God called me to do it, I would do it. What if God would call you to preach on the streets? You're like, that's a little different than church. Um, preaching in public, there's people who may not want to hear what I have to say. But you know what? If God called me to do it, I think I would do it. I think if God put that calling on my life, he would give me uh, and, and, and again, enabling. He would strengthen me. He would encourage me to do that and I would do that thing. Okay, what if God called you to preach to ISIS? Go on the streets and preach to ISIS. 
people say, hmm, I, like with a righteous anger, am angry at them for what they've done to Christians and what they continue to do to Christians and how they kill people. I'm simultaneously afraid of them and angry at them. And now you're asking me to go and do something that takes neither anger nor fear but faith and preach to them. It's such a, I mean, it's just such a a wacky combination of emotions that you would feel at that time. What if the year was, what if it was 70 years ago? Put it at, uh, 80 years ago rather, put it at 1941. And you're Jewish. And God commissioned you to preach, just, I just need you to preach repentance on the streets of Berlin to Nazi Germans. How would you feel? See, I think Jonah gets a bad rap, and I get it. Like, I get why he gets a bad rap, but think through that situation. Don't you kind of get what Jonah's feeling, what he's feeling? You say, I, I do. That's helpful. But I'm pretty sure if God spoke to me and told me to do something, I would, I'm pretty sure I would do that thing. Right? Like the voice of God, I don't know what it sounds like, but I'm pretty sure it would get my attention, fairly certain he wouldn't struggle with a bad signal. I think if God spoke to me audibly, I'm pretty sure I would, I would do it. I still can't believe Jonah would literally refuse to obey the spoken word of God and be the non-prophet that he was. Well, that brings us to our first point, which is this. You need to remember the spoken word of God and the written word of God are the exact same thing. You need to remember that the spoken word of God and the written word of God are the exact same thing. So when we see the word of God coming to Jonah in Jonah chapter 1, and it says the word of God came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and said, Arise, go to Nineveh. And it turns out that instead of him going east to Nineveh, like 500, 600-ish miles, he chooses to go west to Tarshish, which would be over 2,000 miles away. Instead of him taking a hike, I'm not saying it's easy, but taking a journey over land, he gets on a boat and goes to Tarshish. Instead of him going for free to where God calls him, he pays to go to Tarshish. And you're like, this guy's crazy. Like, talk about a hard-hearted sinner. How could he refuse the word of God? He spoke to him by name, Jonah, son of Amittai. And you say, well, what about when you read the word of God? And you see what it says. And there's things that you're told to do and you don't do them. What about when you read the word of God and there's things you are told not to do, but you do them? You say, you're right, I get it. None of us are perfect. We all, right, we're all sinners by nature. We Strive to please the Lord, but none of, us, none of us are perfect. But come on, bro. Peter, 
Like, level with me here. Jonah heard from God by name, spoke to him. You're telling me that's the same thing as me reading the word of God, but it's in a book. It's not to Peter. It's not to so-and-so. It's not to Sarah, to Joe, to Tom, to Kate. It's, it's, It's just the Bible that we all read. You're telling me that's the same thing? Like, I get reading the book. Like, I know I should obey, but I get reading it and not doing what it's like trying and kind of working my way around to it and eventually obeying. But if God spoke to someone, surely that would get their attention. And here's what I would say to you. If you can understand reading the Bible and not obeying God's word, but you're shocked that Jonah would hear from God himself and not obey, you have a low view of Scripture for which you should be very concerned. Does that make sense? If one of those shocks you and the other one's like, yeah, I know, but who among us, bro? Like, but that guy, he's crazy for disobeying. If you think someone who hears the audible word of God, the verbal word of God, but responding to the written word of God is different, but... You're shocked that somebody would rebel against the audible word of God. But the written word of God, you're like, yeah, that's bad, but it's not like that. Listen to me. You have a low view of Scripture for which you should be very concerned. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and following says, How much Scripture is breathed out by God? I see the word what? I see all. Again, a little louder for the people in the back. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. For reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Uh, this Bible's a few years old, but I had a, a, my older Bible, which was like, it was falling apart. I mean, it was just, but I had it rebound at one point and I uh, put a, it was soft cover, I made it hard cover, and on the binding, I put a Greek word, theopneustos. The Greek word theopneustos means God breathed. God breathed. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where it says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or if you have a, a more literal translation, it says all Scripture has been breathed out by God, or God breathed. That's the picture Paul is painting to us of the written Word of God. He is essentially leveling the spoken Word of God and the written Word of God to say it's the same thing, man. It's the same thing. All Scripture has been breathed out by God. You might say, how is Scripture God-breathed? Like, before you said he didn't have a face, how does he breathe it? Like, what do you, how, how is Scripture God-breathed? Well, here's uh, two ways, very briefly, that our Bible has come to pass, that the Word of God has come to pass, that God has inspired the writers of Scripture. One is, I mean, sometimes God told the writers of Scripture exactly what to say and write. When God comes to someone's like, get a pen, go. Or here's what I want you to say. Here, Jeremiah 1.9, it's in your outline. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. That's pretty clear, right? Like, <laughs> hey, I have just put my words in your mouth. Like, I don't know what he means. No, it's exact. he means what he says, he says what he means. That's sometimes, but most times that's actually not the case. Most times God worked in their minds, in the hearts, and the experiences, and even the vocabularies of the writers of Scripture to produce his perfect, infallible, inerrant word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul says this. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The word of God, which is at work in you believers. So he's saying, we're confident that, and we're grateful that when you heard us speak the word of God, 
implying what we said was the word of God. You accepted it as the word of God. And we're super grateful for that. We're glad. Uh, the Apostle Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so once again, you need to make sure that you understand that the written word of God is the same as the spoken word of God that Jonah heard. When you read the word of God on your own, it is the same as Jonah hearing the word of God spoken to him. It's why I opened the service saying what I said, that when we hear the word of God, it's the exact same thing as if Jesus was standing here speaking to us verbally. Like I study a lot and put a lot of time and effort into preparing sermons. But at the end of the day, it's still a Peter LaRuffa crafted sermon. But you know what? For at least like 60 to 90 seconds in the beginning, when I read the word of God, you heard something flawless. That's probably worth standing for. We stand for far less. And so we call attention to like, oh, this is a little different. This is a little special. In fact, it's very special. This is the word of God. What about you? Do you ever think your life would be different, your walk with the Lord would be different if God spoke audibly to you as he did to Jonah? I don't think it would be different at all. At all. Listen, people don't obey or disobey based on the means by which they receive the word of God. We obey or disobey based on the merit we ascribe to the word of God, whether it's spoken or written. Jonah heard a command from the Lord that was hard to stomach. And I think, hopefully, I painted a bit. We understand why it would be hard to stomach. We're not like, Jonah's a jerk. It would be, we understand why it was hard to stomach. Like, wow, that's, God's asking him to do a lot. That's a real shift from what he was doing. Should he have done it? Of course he should have done it, but I get why he didn't do it. He didn't do it, but he's like, I would do it if God said, please. No, I would do it if he texted me. I would do it if it was written. None of that. He didn't want to do it because of what he was being asked to do. We obey or disobey based on the merit, the honor, the, the level we ascribe to the word of God, whether it's spoken or written. Listen, this might shock you, but I believe it with all my heart. If God audibly spoke to you as he did to Jonah... I'd be willing to bet your track record of obedience to God would be exactly the same as it is right now. Because you respond to the word of God based on the fact that it's the word of God. Don't fool yourself into thinking that it would be different if God spoke audibly to you like he did to Jonah. It would not. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, And it's able to pierce right through to our hearts and minds, whether it's spoken, whether it's written, whether it comes to us in a flare, whether it's a smoke signal. That's the word of God. The word of God is what impacts our minds and our hearts. Jonah had a problem with what he was being asked to do. When you disobey God, you have a problem with what God is asking you to do, not how God asked you to do it. So what about you? How will remembering the Bible is toast? God breathed. Change your thoughts on Bible intake. How might it affect your thoughts on biblical 
obedience. So Jonah's disobedience had everything to do with his heart and his mind, just like my disobedience and your disobedience or obedience has everything to do with our hearts and minds. God called him to do something that was like very unpopular, not fun, not fulfilling, and very risky. And because of his heart condition, he went the other way in disobedience, which leads us to our second point. Point number two, the Christian life is not without risk. It's not without risk. It's not uncommon for Christianity to surprise you, scare you, cost you, but also bless you. It's not uncommon at all. Let's not be so fast to judge Jonah because I think we're all too often just like Jonah. At this point in the narrative, we know what Jonah did, but we don't know why he did it. But I'll tell you one of the greatest slippery slopes in disobedience comes with this. Rationalization. It's when you start to rationalize in your mind. You say, I know God's word says, but this is different. I know God said, but this is, so maybe Jonah will be like, I know God said to go to Nineveh, but I, if I do that, I might like die and I'd, I'd rather not die. And so I think that's probably not, I must have misheard. It's probably not a big deal if I don't do that thing. I, if I do stay behind and I don't go, I can serve God longer because I will be not dead. And I don't think, like God, I mean, God calls me to preach words that show God to be like mighty and on the move. And we're going to restore the nation of Israel. And this is not that. This is to other people. This is, I know God said, but this is different. I know God told me to go, uh, but I, this is different. And when you rationalize, you make rational Lies. You speak lies to yourself that make sense to yourself. I know God said, but that would be super dangerous, and I don't know why I would go if, like, he's probably, he'll send, he'll send someone else. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. It's not a big deal. And when you rationalize, you speak rational lies. You lie to yourself. You talk yourself into doing something you shouldn't do or not doing something you should do the times when we know God's word, know what he would have us to do, and we start to rationalize, and when you do that, and when you know what God would have you do, you can't deny it, right? You know what God would have you do in that moment. You, you, you just can't deny it. You start to talk yourself out of it. Yeah, this is different. And beware, when you start to rationalize, you speak rational lies. And so, we don't know at this point in the text why Jonah's doing what he's doing, but I put, just from a quick view of scripture, four rational lies we believe that lead to disobedience. Uh, Rational lie number one that's in your outline. If this was God's will for me, he would have given me a reason. I think there might be an error on my part in your outline. It should say Genesis 3 and verse 6. So that's uh, briefly, we won't go there, but that's when uh, the serpent is talking to Eve and God had made clear to Adam who told Eve not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but and said, for if you eat of it, you would surely die. But Eve heard what Satan had said, and then she saw that the fruit was what? Pleasing to the eye, would be good for us, that it would be a blessing to us, and think God wouldn't make poison. I know he said we'd die. Probably means probably means something else. We should probably just eat. Surely if God didn't want us to eat this, he would he would give us a reason. 
And God didn't give me a reason. He just said, don't eat of that tree. But I mean, a tree is a tree, so I'm sure God won't really mind. If this was God's will for me, he would have given me a reason. He didn't. We can probably eat. Let's eat. So that's one rational lie that would lead to disobedience. Number two, if this was God's best for me, I wouldn't be upset about it. If this was God's will for me, I probably, God would, like, he, he's for me, right? Like, he wants me to do well. He wants me to obey. So he, if this was God's will for me, he'd probably give me, like, this feeling of goodness and happiness and excitement to obey the word of God. And so in Genesis chapter 4, uh, Cain and Abel, they present offerings to the Lord. The Lord has regard for Abel's offering, does not have regard for Cain's. And so Cain's countenance falls. He's, uh, some people believe he's depressed. I say he's angry, really, really ticked. And God comes to Cain. He says, what's the matter? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, you'll be accepted. And he warns him. He says, be careful. Sin is crouching for you at the door, but you must rule over it. So it's this hope-filled, like, I know that wasn't accepted, but be of good cheer. Have hope. You can do better. And so instead of obeying the word of God and believing God at his word, what does Cain do? He goes with how he feels. And instead of believing God, he's like, yeah, whatever. I'm, where's Abel? That guy. And he's angry at God for not accepting his offering, but he can't kill God, so he kills Abel. If this was God's best for me, I wouldn't be upset about it. I'm not going to believe God. God would make me feel better about it. Uh, lie number three. If this was God's will for me, it would make sense to me. Genesis chapter 22 when God looks to Abraham and tells him he wants him to take his son, Isaac, and he says, I want you to take your son, comma, your only son, up on that mountain and sacrifice him to me. Now, here's an example where the word of God came to a man, and I'm sure it wasn't easy. It didn't make sense to him. I don't think Abraham heard that and was like, oh, that's, yeah, I get that. Like, I was actually wondering when you were going to ask me to kill my one and only son. So I get this. Yeah, we should do this doesn't make sense to him, but he trusts the word of God and does it anyway. And God provides a ram in the thicket and shows himself to be merciful and shows Abraham to be faithful. How about number four? If this was God's will for me, it wouldn't be so risky. There's a lot of overlap between these, but number four, if this was God's will for me, it wouldn't be so risky. Matthew chapter 14, that's when uh, the apostle Peter sees Jesus. I was left. The apostle Peter sees Jesus on the water. And Peter's like, I got this. Like, this can't be him. Hey, if you're, if you're really Jesus, call me, call me out to join you on the water. And Jesus is like, all right, come. And Peter's like, well, shoot. <laughs> but instead of him thinking this, no, it's, now I know it's not him because it's calling me to risk. What does he do? He steps out of the boat onto the water and struggles but obeys. The risk didn't scare him away from obeying God. Why is it tempting? I think we all can relate to this. Why is it tempting to think that circumstances fitting together well proves that a course of action must be the will of God? Why is it tempting to believe that circumstances not fitting together well would cause us to believe this is not the will of God? I have a theory, and it's based in Romans chapter 8. So stay in Jonah, but go to Romans chapter 8 
quickly as we look to Romans 8 and verse 31. Here's how I think we tend to roll when it comes to stuff like this. Romans chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 31. Romans 8.31 says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we're like, yes and amen. I love that God is for me. I love that's one of the most hope-filled, reassuring verses in all of Scripture. We think exactly, he's for me. So if something comes down the pike that seems against me, it must not be of him, right? God is for me. So there's a circumstance that's not really for me. It seems to be against me. It must not be the will of what? God, because God is for me, but you have to read on. You, you have to read the next verse. Let's read the first, let's read 31 again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Keep going. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? But pay attention. Paul's making an argument from the greater to the lesser. God gave his son, his what? His one and only son, He sacrificed him on our behalf, and we who believe as a result have been given eternal life. If you're a Christian, what I just said is what you're putting all your hope in. Like all your eggs are in that basket. Jesus died on the cross, was buried. He rose on the third day. God was satisfied with the punishment that he paid on behalf of me. And because he rose from the grave, I too will rise. All your eggs are in that basket. And so here's what Paul is saying. If you've put all your eggs in that for eternity, rescue from hell, gift of heaven comes from the gospel. Why should any other thing be too daunting for us to do? Like we put all our eggs in that basket for things that count far more. We believe that Jesus Christ has saved us as sinners. And then we believe that we're going to heaven because of what Jesus did. Why do we believe that? Because the word of God says it and I'm, I, I wholeheartedly believe it. Okay. We're calling you to go to such and such a place. This can't be of God. I'm scared. I'm not going to do that. Why are you going to heaven? Because I believe that Jesus died 2,000 years ago on my behalf. Did you see it happen? Nope. Can you prove it for yourself? Nope. Nope. We're, it's by conviction. It's by faith. We're saved by grace through faith, not saved by grace through facts. And so I, I believe that's why I'm going to heaven. Okay. God's calling you to confront someone with the gospel that, yeah, I don't think he is. This is crazy. I got to get out of here. Do you see the, the, the craziness of that? Where we're putting all our eggs in one basket for our eternal destiny, but then something comes along in our life that's so hard. We're like, this can't be of God. I'm not going to do it. Friends, I think Christians should be the most courageous, bravest, boldest people on the planet. On the planet. Because we don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't, I'm not, I don't want to, I'm hoping I die every day. I don't want to die. But even if we do die, we don't die. We just live elsewhere. And to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. We are the win-win people. Christians are the win-win people. Jonah has lost sight of the fact that as a believer, he's in a win-win situation. That he can live for the Lord or he can die for the Lord and be with the Lord. Win-win, bro. He's like, yeah, no, that's a loss. There's live on this world or there's die obeying Jesus and there's a win there and there's a loss there. I'm going to stick with the win category. And he's lost sight of the fact that believers are win-win people by definition. 
That's why Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Save it. Flip that whole thing upside down. Loss is gain. Gain is loss. But that's biblical economics. It's a new value system that God's called us to as Christians. And Jonah's lost sight of that. And friends, when we disobey God, we lose sight of that too. When we think this life is all we've got. What I see is all that is. The circumstances I interpret them are all... I understand things. And God's like, do you? Because my ways are not your ways. My ways are outside. Like, I'm God. I see the heart. You just see the things. And God's like, trust me. Trust me. You've trusted me to rescue you from hell. Trust me with the job change. It's not a big deal. Trust me. You've trusted me to rescue, to give you heaven. You, you believe that I... I'm satisfied with Jesus' payment on your behalf so that you wouldn't go to hell. And now you have to talk to your neighbor and it's going to be awkward. And you're like, I'm not going to do it. And God's like, this is not hard for me. I'm God. Did you get, did you name tag? I'm God. God. I can do this. If I didn't, I didn't spare my own son for you. You think I can't give you grace for that job? Grace for that conversation? Grace to reconcile this relationship? I'm God. And so God looks to Jonah and it's like, I'm calling you to go to Nineveh. This is not hard for me. Jonah's like, it's like stinking hard for me. And God's like, yeah, I know. But I'm, you're just Jonah. I'm God. Let's go. And finally, since God is the main character in your life, your obedience shows your view of him more than anything else. Please look at Jonah chapter 1 and verse 3. This stood out to me. I actually laughed a little about it. It's really weird to walk by my office in sermon prep and I'm laughing to myself. But it happens. Look at, look at verse 3. Um, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. That is such a repetitive sentence. We could have made it a lot shorter. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with the Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Tell me, the, there's three sentences in that verse. Tell me you didn't get everything you needed to know out of the first one. But it's like, hey, get this. Redundancy in the scriptures is not a mistake ever. It's like, get this. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Tarshish. Okay? The size of Nineveh is close to the size of Columbus, give or take. So picture being called to Columbus. God has commissioned you to go to Columbus. Two hours up I-71. Two hours and 20 minutes because of the stinking bridge. All right, so it's two hours up I-71. God's commissioned you to go to uh, Columbus for free to preach. And instead, you buy a ticket to go to Brazil just to not go to Columbus. 
free trip in obedience to the Lord, but you're like, where's my passport? What are you doing? I'm not going to Columbus. And by that, you're going to, where are you going? Brazil. I got to go to Brazil. Why? I'm going to flee the presence of the Lord. You're going to flee the, let me get this straight. You're going to flee the presence of the omnipresent God. Yeah, why is that so weird to you? Okay, so you could go to free. Let me rephrase this one, make sure I get it. You can go free to Columbus. Free. You're going to pay a lot of money because that's what he did. He paid a, you see that he bought a ticket. He didn't like sneak on. He's like one ticket to Tarshish. And so three, two times in that, it says, uh, but Jonah, look at verse three, flee from the presence of the Lord. Look at the last sentence. It says, so he paid the fare, went down into the boat, go with them Tarshish again, in case I wasn't clear, to flee from the presence of the Lord. This is what this man is doing. Three times in that verse, it says he went to Tarshish. He went to Tarshish. Hey, did I mention he went to Tarshish? That's like me saying, hey, Joe didn't go to Columbus. So where did he go? He went to Brazil. Wait, what? Yeah, you heard me. He went to Brazil. Wow. That's really, he went to Brazil, bro. Whoa. That's way different. That's not only I won't go, I want to go like so far in the opposite direction. And the primary issue with Jonah is not that he's a patriotic guy who's been called to preach to the enemy. That's an issue, but that's not the primary issue. The primary issue with Jonah is not the, the fact that a series of terrorist state. That's an issue, but that's not the primary issue. The primary issue with Jonah is in his heart and mind and how he's thinking through what God has called him to do. That's the primary issue. And so in your outline, I put a little like sliding scale of what happens to us and where I think we give up too easily when we're being tempted to not do the word of God. And so you see, it starts out with the word standing, susceptible, seduced, sin, shame, stupidity, and stone. Yes, I'm excited that it all starts with S's. But anyway, standing is like, Okay, things are good. I'm not perfect, but life is good. I'm standing. I feel like I'm in a good place. I feel like things are going well. I'm walking closely with the Lord. Susceptible, we're, it's a fine line. We're always susceptible. And that's what I, by that I mean temptation. We're susceptible to temptation. So it's not the end of the world, but it's also something to keep an eye out for. But that's why I put it's not, a, it's not a big deal. Here's what I mean by that. I think sometimes we think temptation is the same as sin. And it is not necessarily the same as sin. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet he sinned not. And so Jesus lived in between those two things where he would be tempted, but he wouldn't sin. He would be tempted, but he wouldn't sin. He never got past that second point. He would be standing. He would be susceptible to temptation. He could be tempted, but he never sinned. I think some of us see the temptation as the sin and say, we're like, well, I'm already there. I've already thought about what I'm going to do on my computer when I get home, and I haven't done it yet. But since I've thought about it, God's already mad at me, so I might as well do it. I keep thinking about that guy who's so much cooler, better, more godly, more handsome, more stronger than my husband. And I'm thinking about him so much, then for me to take it to the next level is really not that God knows my thoughts. And so if I'm thinking about something, I might as well act on it, right? Because God knows my heart. We see temptation drawing us away, and we're like, oh, well, that's just the same thing. It's like, well, it's actually not. You can be tempted and not sin. You can be tempted to do something that's sinful and then not sin. But then you start rationalizing in your head. So standing, susceptible, we start becoming seduced. And then we choose to sin or fall into sin. So we go from things are good to, okay, I'm being tempted, but it's not a big deal, to I'm going to rationalize in my head to I did it. And then we're ashamed. I can't believe I did it. How could I ever do it? How could a real Christian ever do this? And then we hide. 
And then we become stupid. Sin makes you stupid. Jonah's a smart man. He's, I think I'm going to, where are you going? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flee the presence of the Lord. He told the sailors, I'm fleeing the presence of the Lord. He straight up told them, where are you off to? I'm running from God. How about you? Sin makes you stupid. It makes you dumb. But then it makes you numb. And we're called as Christians to 2 Corinthians 10.5 to remember this is not about the outside circumstances. This is about the inside. It's about the heart. 2 Corinthians 10 says we walk in the flesh, but we're not waging. The, the, the war is not in the flesh. The war is in the mind. It's in the heart. Verse 5 says that's why we destroy arguments <coughs> and every, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience. But here's the good news for you and me as we close. Christianity is not about self-improvement. It's not about your good outweighing your bad. It's not about a bunch of nice people trying to be nicer. This isn't like Midwest nice. It's not about your imperfect record because that gets blotted out by Christ with Christ's perfect record on your behalf. That's why Jesus came. That's why he came to earth. He came to earth to die on the cross for sinners like you and like me so that his absolutely perfect record, all the times he sinned and never gave, um, excuse me, all the times he tempted but was never sinned. He never gave in to sin. All the times he was tempted, perfect record, nailed it every time. We take your failing record, my failing record, and we just put your name on his perfect record, his name on your imperfect record. He gets punished as if you deserve, and you go walking into heaven as if he deserved it. It's a glorious truth of the gospel. That's why Jesus came. And so when we are called to obey, when Jonah's called to obey, it's not, come on, Jonah, you've got to muster up the courage. You've got to really do it this time. No. No. Jonah needs to remember who he is as a believer and that what God has called him to do, God will give him the strength to do it. That's why Jesus came. We look back on Jesus coming. He was looking forward to Jesus coming. That's why Jesus was coming. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus didn't say, I'm not going down there. I'm not going you crazy? I'm not going down there. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was the ultimate Jonah because he was sent. He came. He didn't hesitate. He didn't grumble. He didn't have any trouble thinking through what God was asking him to do. He struggled. In the garden, God, if there's any way for me to be obedient to you but not do that thing, oh, God in heaven, oh, Father, please help me. But at the end of the day, I want to do your will more than my will. Tempted, yes. Obedient, yes. Was what he was called to do hard? Yes. Did he do it anyway? Yes. Why? Because he remembered who he was and who he's there to serve. Jesus came in selfless love, leaving the glories of heaven to come into this world and paid my ransom with his blood. That's why Jesus came. So we don't have to muster up our own strength and courage to do better than Jonah the next time we have an opportunity, but we look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and say, help me, God. Work in me both to will and to work for your good pleasure, 
even and especially when it's hard for me because it's never hard for him. That's why Jesus came. Father, would you help us to bow to your word first and foremost? Lord, that we would not be scared off by difficult circumstances, but that we would seek to be obedient in all ways as much as we can. Not because we desire to improve ourselves, but because we desire to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because you work in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. Remind us, Lord, that the ability comes from you and help us to have faith in you to give us the ability to obey and honor you in all our ways for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.